Mark chapter 6 tonight. Mark chapter 6, if you'd go there. I absolutely love the gospel of Mark. I just love it. Second book in the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, uh, you got Matthew is the first uh, book of the New Testament, and then Mark comes right after it. For your knowledge, most uh, uh, scholars, of which I'm certainly not, most scholars believe, because it, it, it was written of by, by uh, uh, many just right after uh, the, uh, the completion of the New Testament, there were some men such as uh, Justin Martyr and Josephus and others who wrote historical books about that generation of time many of them would say that the gospel of Mark was Mark writing down the words of Peter. You could actually call this the gospel of Peter. It was like Peter Peter and Mark were very close. And uh, John Mark was recaptured after some kind of a, of a departure from the work of God. He came back to the things of the Lord. And we're not real sure all that took place in his life. You read about that in the book of Acts. But nevertheless, Peter... <coughs> who knew about failure, takes John Mark under his wing and helps to mentor him and helps him a little bit. And, and uh, John Mark writes these words that uh, Peter, more than likely, dictated to him as Peter was moved by the Holy Spirit of God. And the thing I love about the Gospel of Mark is it's fast moving. It's quick moving. It's, uh, the stories are to the point. The, the key word in the book of Mark is the word, the old King James word, is the word straightway, which in our vernacular means immediately. And immediately Jesus went here. And immediately Jesus stepped into the boat. And immediately Jesus went to the other side of the sea. And immediately Jesus healed this person. It's, it's the key word, straightway. And I love that. And I've got you in chapter 6 tonight, but I want to say before we read it, that in chapters 4 and 5, you see a great deal of exciting things that took place. Jesus, uh, Jesus calmed a stormy Sea of Galilee when a, when a heavy storm came in and the disciples were scared for their life and Jesus calmed it. You see that Jesus had power over nature. Then He goes over to a place called Gadara and there was a man that was possessed of, in His own words, a legion of demons. In other words, he had probably, folks, probably over a thousand demons controlling him. Certainly multiple hundreds. And he was a man who was out of control. And Jesus delivered him of those demons. Just phenomenal. You said, well, that must have been quite a change. Let me tell you something. When anybody comes to Jesus Christ and accepts Him as their Savior, that's a miracle change. And you may not be delivered from demons, but the truth is we are delivered from our sin nature when we come. We were delivered from the eternal wrath of God in hell. That's a miracle that we would be redeemed and rescued. So Jesus rescues this man. So we see that he had power over nature. We see that he had power over demons. Then he comes back over the Sea of Galilee. And this all happens in chapter 5. And he comes back over to the, to the, what are we looking at, the western side of the Sea of Galilee, near Capernaum. And there, uh, he is approached by two different people. One is a man by the name of Jairus, who has a daughter that's dying. And before Jesus can get to Jairus' house, the daughter dies. She's 12 years of age. 
And when Jesus gets to that house, he literally raises her from the dead, which shows us that Jesus has power over death. And on the way to that home, there was a woman who had been diseased of a blood, probably a blood tumor in her system for 12 years. She just, she's that one who comes up behind him and touches his garment, probably a tassel at the end of his garment, and, and she's immediately healed because in her heart, she, she knows if I can just simply touch his garment, I, I will be healed because I know who he is. So it shows us that Jesus has power over disease. And now we come to chapter 6. All of those exciting things happen in chapters 4 and 5. A great deal of faith. And now all of a sudden, notice in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, And he went out from thence and came into his own country. And his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him, were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. Father, please help us in the moments that we have together in your word to get the Bible help that we need. Lord, I'm just your tool. I'm just your instrument. And that's all I want to be tonight. So I pray that you'll use the message to work in every heart that's here. Lord, it's all about you and it's all for you and it's all because of you that we gather together tonight. And so I thank you for the joy of being with friends. Do a work in our hearts that only you can do. We ask it in your glorious name. Amen. When Lynn, my wife, and I first got married, our first ministry was in Central Florida. And that's where it's warm. And uh, we, we were down in Central Florida. And and uh, while we were there, I mean, we were in our 20s. <laughs> that's just been a few years ago. And, uh, uh, and we were pretty excited about being there. And there was something that was in Central Florida that everybody knows about. Mickey World, Disney World. And so it didn't take any time for these two 20-year-old something, 20-somethings, uh, to get over to, to Disney World. And like a couple of kids enjoyed every bit of it. I mean, we just loved it all. And then we went over to Epcot Center. And then, I mean, we just saw the whole thing. We, we loved it. And I think we went back a second time, probably a year later, and loved it again and just really enjoyed it. After that, uh, we kind of mainly went only when a friend would come visit us and we'd take them over there and uh, we'd show it to them. And really it was, was more fun just to watch it through the eyes of somebody seeing it for the first time. Then we had children, our two boys, and as they, were, as they were got old enough to enjoy it, we took them and we watched it through their eyes. But after a bit of time, uh, we never went back. I mean, it was just, it was just, just down the road. 
you know, we lived in Tampa and, and uh, they were, uh, it was over in Orlando, just about an hour and a half drive away. It wasn't very far away, but we, we, didn't, we didn't even think about it until somebody would show up that would come to our church and, and we'd find out why, why they had come. If they were on vacation, we'd find out they were going to Disney World. And all that's, and I go, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Disney World's around here. I didn't think about it. I just kind of took it for granted, you know. Then we moved from Florida and we came to northern Arizona. I love the, that's when I fell in love with the West. We lived up there in Flagstaff, Arizona. We started a camp ministry there, just 86 miles away from Grand Canyon. If you've seen it, you know how breathtaking it is. I mean, the first time you walk up to it, you go, whoa. And you take your camera and you go, there's no way I can capture this. This is breathtaking. And I happen to know the one who created it and allowed it to take place. And I don't care what the tour guides say about uh, the evolution of millions and millions of years. I know the God who allowed this to happen through the universal flood. Nevertheless, I'm standing there and I'm looking at it and I'm just overwhelmed. Went back a second time. I hiked into it four times. I, I, I went down into it and we, we came in and out of it and it's just a breathtaking event. But you know something after a while, I didn't think about Grand Canyon. It kind of lost some of its glamour. It became common. And somebody would come visit our ministry and they'd say, hey, hey, while we're here, can you, can you take me to the Grand Canyon? And I'd think, sure. And I'm thinking, oh, there goes a day. You know, I mean, I, I, I got to drive to the Grand Canyon and say, yeah, and over here's this and over here's this. And then you want to you want to walk into it a little bit. OK, let's go a little bit. And it's a long drive over and a long drive back A full day's gone. And, I'm, you know, it, you know, the Grand Canyon just had kind of lost its grandness. And I hate to tell this one because I'm in a room full of men who work with this stuff all the time. But I am not a fix-it guy, kind of a guy. But I was working up in my attic oh, a few years back. And uh, I, I was nailing down some, some uh, plywood board. I was nailing some things down so I could store some things up in our attic. And, and I noticed the very first time I went up there that there was up in a, a socket some wires hanging down that was there for the purpose of installing a, a bulb if I ever wanted it, but I always kind of function during the daylight hours and I'd get enough light from outside or I'd use my flashlight and I was working and, and I just never took the time to try to install one. And I was working up there for two or three days up in the attic until one day I was going up there and I was bringing some stuff up and I just saw it and it was kind of in my way. You know how you have to kind of crunch over in some places in the attic and I saw it and I just kind of reached up there to, to move those, those wires. <laughs> And I got the shock of my life, I tell you. <laughs> Realized the real meaning of a live wire. I'm telling you, I got it, and it zapped me a good one. I'd gotten familiar with something. The first time I was there, you know, I was kind of avoiding it. And then after a while, I got used to it. And it almost hurt me to a real serious degree. When you come to Mark chapter 6, you read of people who were familiar with Jesus. He was kind of common. You say, what do you mean? He grew up there. Look at verse one again. It says, and when, and excuse me, and he went out from thence and came into his own country, his own country, and his disciples followed. The words his own country is where he grew up, Nazareth. 
Now we got some pictures I want to show you, and Chris is going to throw them up here for us tonight. And we see, first of all, this is an overall scene. This is not Nazareth. This is Capernaum. This is an aerial view of Capernaum. And you can go there and see that day. It's all excavated. And I could point out some things. But what you see there from a distance is the synagogue. I'm going to show you a closer view of that in a minute. And uh, you see Peter's home that the uh, Catholic Church... Uh, sadly enough, have built a kind of a shrine over the house that Peter was in, just a few feet away from the, the synagogue. And you see some other things. Next picture shows you an olive press. You've ever heard, you've always heard of the, the Mount of Olives and the olives that are there. This is an olive press. It was a major enterprise in that area. And they've excavated one there. And, uh, and I, I, I've got the privilege to go to the Holy Land. Uh, one time I got to see this very site. And I, I saw uh, this uh, olive press and shows you a little bit of some of the activity of that day. And then the next one is a picture of the synagogue. This is the, the synagogue that they have excavated. I mean, all of this is just, nobody lives there. I mean, it's all had to be excavated. And this is the synagogue, uh, probably not the very one that Jesus was in. His was probably a few feet under. That's been, this has been built up uh, after the fact. This was uh, probably, uh, I think, around uh, 400 uh, 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 A.D. that this began to be uh, built and, and uh, men were, were, were worshiping there. But after a while, it was all destroyed by Rome and it was taken care of. But now the next picture shows you a shot of Nazareth, the hill country. Capernaum, I should have noted to you, was a flat land. And it says here uh, that he went uh, up to his own country. Now, Nazareth is still existent. Now, this is a very big enterprise metropolis looking area. But when Jesus was there, the maximum, the maximum crowd of people in, in population of Nazareth was probably 500. Probably not that much. Probably the most was around 300. But it, somewhere between three to 500 people lived in Nazareth. And so to get the picture, Jesus is going back to his home town. He's the hometown boy, his own country. Look, these people knew him. You say, what do you mean? He grew up there. You see, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was, he was taken for two years by his, his foster father and his mother, Mary, down to Egypt for his protection. For two years, they lived down in Egypt. And then when the Lord made it clear to Joseph that it was okay to go back home to Nazareth, they come back to Nazareth. Jo Jesus is about two years of age. Jesus started, the only thing we know about Jesus in, in the scriptures in Luke chapter 2 that tells us that he submitted himself to his parents and uh, he went to the temple uh, and, and was there in the temple and was asking questions of the, of the doctors and the teachers of the law and so forth. And then it also says that he went back home and he submitted himself to his dad, which meant that his dad, his foster father Joseph, taught him the trade of being a carpenter. And it wasn't until he was 30 years old that he started his ministry back in Capernaum, those earlier pictures we showed you. Okay, what's the point? The point is from 2 to 30, 28 years, if your brain's working okay on a Monday night, 28 years he has lived among 300 to 500 people. Uh, do you sometimes feel like you know everybody in Fernley if you live here? I, I would suppose so. And you got, what, 19, 20,000 people here in this area or maybe some, somewhere around that number, I don't know. But the fact is... Here's Jesus in a small community. Everybody knew Jesus. He was the son of Joseph, son of Mary. He had picked up the trade that daddy had taught him. 
In fact, the truth is many people believe that Joseph being an older man when he married Mary probably died and Jesus being the firstborn took up the family trade to take care of the family in those later years or older years of his adult years and he's known as the carpenter. Now in a small community like that, it meant more than just working with wood. He probably worked with uh, uh, leather goods and so forth. And in fact, Justin Martyr again wrote and said that Jesus was, was he, he made uh, uh, carts uh, for, for uh, farmers and shepherds and so forth. And he, and he, he made uh, leather uh, 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 things, uh, uh, yokes for, for the oxen, uh, for those who had oxen and donkeys and so forth. And he was the carpenter. He would walk the streets of, of Nazareth. Everybody knew him. Then he leaves. He's anywhere between 30 to 33. And he's the boy made good. And everybody's talked about Jesus all across the known area. Christopher, thank you for that. You can take that down. Here's the deal. Jesus comes back and they say, isn't this the carpenter? Now, you know, in our English words here, we just read these words and almost go over them quickly. In the language in which it was written, there's a lot of harshness in these words. Let me see if I can draw attention to some things. Is this not the carpenter? They didn't even name him. They named Mary. They named his brothers, Joseph and Judah and Simon. They named them. In another text in the Gospel of Luke, They named Joseph, his father, his foster father. They won't even name him. And there's a sense of rudeness. Notice in verse verse 2 again. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? This man, it'd be like you and me talking about somebody, we'd say, Who does this guy think he is. That's exactly what the kind of language is being used here. Who is this guy? Well, they knew who he was. He grew up among them. But what's happened? They've lost the awe, the wonder of who Jesus is because they were familiar with him. And like a goofball trying to move wires out of the way in the attic, I'd become so familiar with it, it almost, it, it, it almost brought severe pain. And these people are going to suffer a great loss because they had become familiar with Jesus. And I want you to see, without having to turn to it, I want you to see what Luke says in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. The words will be on the screen. It simply says, uh, do we have that, Chris? Okay, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Now, this was the first time, this is the first time Jesus went there. He came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Yeah, we got the next one. Okay, and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. That's Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and he sat down, 
And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bearing witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily, or truthfully, I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, that's uh, Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow, and many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias, that's Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up, and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he passing through the midst of them, went his way. You say, Brother Morris, what's the point? The point is, these people rejected him. He went two times. Now stay with me. He went two times to his own hometown. The first time they tried to kill him, but he got through and got away. He actually comes back about a year later, and here he is once again speaking to them. And they're probably wondering with trepidation, what kind of disturbance is he going to cause this time? And as he comes to them once again, I don't know that he get, got very far with speaking in the synagogue when they begin to reject what he has to say. And they begin to question, who, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? is he th does he think he's better than us? Now, what's the whole problem? The problem is this. They were familiar with Jesus. And one of my biggest concerns is that in any of our lives tonight, there comes a point in time in any of our lives that we become so familiar with the things of God. The Word of God, the songs of God, the house of God, the people of God, the work of God, that we lose the wonder of our walk with God and of who He really is Amen. and what He has done for us. The danger of familiarity. I want you to notice, first of all, the descriptive or dangerous attitudes when we become familiar with Jesus. Now, I don't mean by becoming familiar as something that's bad. Now, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, excuse me, as something that is, I don't mean it to be familiar with him is, is, is not a good thing that you should keep your distance from him. No, no, no. I don't mean that at all. I mean, when we become common, Jesus becomes commonplace in our lives. Well, what are some of the dangerous attitudes? You saw them there in back in our text in Mark 6. Look at, look at it with me. It says in verse 2, when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue and many, that means a great crowd. I mean, you're talking, 300 people in the city hearing him were astonished. The word astonished is the idea of, of disdainment. It was, it was a shocking statement. It was a statement that meant, it meant, well, they go on to say, who, who is this man? Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? There is a sense of rudeness. There is a sense of anger. There is, look, look, there was a sense of entitlement. 
Hey, come on, he's not any better than us. In fact, they said, they said, are not his brothers Joseph and Judah and Simon here? I mean, they're still living here. Hey, isn't his mother Mary still here in our midst? Who is this guy? Is his, aren't his sisters still here? Wasn't this, isn't this the carpenter? He was just here a couple of years ago as a, as a carpenter. Who does he think he is? There is a sense of he's not any better than us. And we are entitled to an explanation as to why he's doing what he's doing. They go on to talk about the fact that his, uh, he's not in any way special. And then the most key important verse is verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Let me just get to the point. You know what the bottom line is, dear friend? The bottom line is simply this. These are people who had a knowledge of Jesus, but they didn't know him. They knew about him, but they didn't know him. And they lost the wow and the awe of him. And there was a sense of wrong and rotten and dangerous descriptive attitudes that came along with it. And I'm going to tell you, I love, love, love the fact that young families bring their their kids to church and in some situations are teaching their kids Christian curriculum when, when possible. And making sure that they attend faithfully to children's meetings and youth gatherings and camps uh, that you're going to be going to this summer. And I'm all the time grateful for every one of those avenues. But I'm going to tell you, one of the things that concerns me is that when a child and then a teenager grows up around the things of God, after a while it's like, I've heard all this before. And it's not any different from grown adults who have grown up in the house of God. Have you ever been around somebody who as an adult, a young adult or middle-aged, whatever the case may be, has just come to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. There is an energy, there is an enthusiasm like a, like a little baby brings to a home. There is a youthfulness. There's a, every song is like a fascinating song. Oh man, look at these words in this song. This is great. Every special in the, 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 that the ensemble sings is special. And every solo is special. And every sermon that pastor preaches and teaches is like, how did he know what I needed? I mean, he just, he must be sitting outside of my house and watching everything that I do. The only thing that concerns me is after a while, they may become familiar. We're used to it. We've heard, what is a revival? It's getting that wonder and that awe of Jesus Christ in our lives again. To the point of where you almost have to stop in the middle of singing a song. I love to tell the story of unseen things. You just sit there and you look at it and go, oh Lord, I love these words. Amazing grace, how sweet this is. Yeah, Lord, I am a wretch. Thank you for saving. Oh, how amazing. Have you, have you ever wept while singing a song? You ever found yourself sometimes, but for fear of someone thinking that you're strange, wanting to lift your hand and praise to the Lord and say, oh God, I love you. Thank you for speaking to my heart. Or has he become too familiar to you? The people in Nazareth, they knew him. Now, I see severe bad attitudes. I mean, no one here would be in that category of wanting to thrust Jesus over a hillside or to, to cast him out of town or to, to, to quieten him down when he begins to teach and speak. I don't see that, but I do see a correlation of wrong attitudes that comes into my life and into your life when we become very familiar with our Christianity, very familiar with our Savior. What happens when well, we, get, we get an entitlement in, uh, attitude? We begin to get a mentality that I deserve better than this. 
And I don't like, I don't like, uh, you know, we find silly things to argue about. We find silly things to find fault with. I don't like the lighting in the auditorium. I don't like the carpet in the auditorium. I don't like these chairs. We ought to have pews. Now, by the way, if anybody has said any of these things, I don't know about it. No one's told me to say any of this stuff, all right? I'm just telling you what is common in so many of our ministries. We find these goofiest, silliest things to complain about. Why? We've lost the awe of Jesus Christ. And we find things to say, well, why, why does that person always get to take up the offering? And why, does, why don't they ever ask me to teach a class? And why don't they ask me uh, to uh, sing a song? And, why don't they, and we get so upset about the silliest of things. And I'm going to tell you something. We've become, we've become negative. Negative. Are you a negative person? Just yesterday morning I preached on Paul in the prison of Rome. And he had his joy in spite of the fact that he was in prison. You know, there was a guy who was not going negative. He was not going to let the events around him. He was not going to let the culture around him. He was not going to let the, uh, the imprisonment that he was suffering with call to, to define him and make him lose the joy of living life. And I'm going to tell you something. These people did not recognize who Jesus was. Oh, they knew him, but they didn't know him. They weren't close to him. Which simply means there could be somebody in this building tonight. You know about Jesus. You know about him. I mean, you, you sat here tonight and you, you heard songs sung about him. You heard, you heard the pastor pray uh, to him. And you're, and you're not opposed to any of that. I mean, you know, maybe you, maybe you even have grown up in this kind of environment. You're familiar with church. But you don't know Jesus Christ. Now, you know his name. You've heard people use it, sometimes maybe in a vain way, as a curse word. Maybe you've just heard him sung. But he's not someone that you know personally. And these people in Nazareth, they knew him. But they didn't know him personally. And what a sad commentary on a case. Jesus says they had a spirit of unbelief. Jesus went to them twice. I see the compassion of Christ. Last time he was there, they were trying to kill him, thrust him over the side of a hill. And here he goes back. Why? Because he wanted to show them, I love you people. I mean, I know you people. And I want you to know who I am. I am the sent one from God above to bring you eternal life. Don't reject me again. And that's why he said, you know, a prophet is... is is not without honor except around his own kin, his own country. He's ignored. Those who knew him from times long ago are rejecting him. When we get these attitudes, it affects our marriage. It'll affect your home. You'll treat each other with a sense of coldness. You'll, you, there'll be unkind words. You become unapproachable. A wife can't talk to her husband about something. Why? Don't get on. Don't talk to me about that. A wife is unapproachable. Leave me alone. You don't know how much I work around here. You went off budget again, didn't you? I knew I couldn't trust you. Well, you know what? You never. You always. And we get a negative spirit toward one another. Why? Because we've lost the wonder of our eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. I don't deserve a loving wife, and I've got one. I don't deserve a, a, a Christian friends, but I have many. I don't deserve eternal life. I deserve to go to hell, 
but I'm not going. I'm going to heaven to be eternally with my Savior. What's the point? The point is, what right do I have to argue and fuss and complain and nag and be negative at home? You know, the best thing in the world for your home would be for you to fall deeply in love with the Lord Jesus with the freshness and to, to be in awe of who He is again. Not only affects your home, your, your, your marriage at home, it'll affect your ministry at church. <laughs> you say, what do you mean? Well, first of all, I hope you have some involvement in ministry. Don't just be someone who comes in, sits and soaks and sours, you know, uh, sit and soak it all up and serve. Serve other people. Find that place in which you are to serve. A church that has church members ought to have a member in every category working in some capacity. I saw a bunch of you at the banquet working a couple of nights ago, and I see people opening the door and greeting people as they walk in the door. I see servants all the time. But my point to you is this. If someone's watching you and listening to you, would they say, I want to know more about their God? Or do they see nothing but negativity of someone who's just... I'm just enduring life. I'm just kind of getting by. How you doing? Well, sit down. Let me tell you a few things. You know, there, there's, there's some people, you never ask them, how you doing? Because they start telling you, you know? <laughs> well, you know, I've got this problem. I didn't really want to know the detailed doctor's report, all right? I, I'm just saying, hello, how you doing? That's all I'm asking. I've said it before. I'll say it again. This is one thing I'll repeat. Some people brighten up the room. When they leave, you know, I mean, the point is they're, they're just so full of negativity. And I'll tell you something. Politics have made us negative. Amen. You can become so addictive to cable news and you suddenly go, I can't believe they're getting by with that. Oh, I don't believe this. Ah, they get so fast. And all of a sudden the whole world is just negative and you live with a cloud hanging over you. And then prices. Look at that cost of gasoline. Unbelievable. Yeah, I know. I live on the road. I get it. I understand. We get the we get we have problems with politicians. We have problem with prices. We have problem with with, with we we complain about problems in life. We we complain about preachers and we complain about uh, you know those that are long winded. And we we find fault with any number of things that occur in our life, and we become negative to where honestly someone would look at us and say, I don't really need their Christianity because I got enough problems of my own. But when they look at me and you, listen, they ought to be able to say, they've got something. That I don't possess. They have a glow that didn't come from an accumulation of stuff and money and popularity and authority and and uh, 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 liquor or drug. I, they've got they've got something going in their world that I don't possess, but I want it. But you see, for instance, when we become just so familiar with the Christian life, we just kind of come in, sing our songs just as I am, and leave just as we were. Why? Because, honestly, we've lost the wonder of who Jesus is. I'm not asking you that, I'm not saying that everybody in this room ought to know what it is to, to weep, but there ought to be a tender heart of worship when you meditate on who God is. Doctrine is not a dusty word when you begin to learn who your God is you say how can I learn who he is I'd start in the Psalms and read a Psalm every day if you want to for 150 days and when you finish start all over again you're going to get a pretty good taste of who God is just from that alone and learn who he is meditate on him otherwise we get a dangerous attitude it affects it affects 
our marriage and home, our ministry at church, it affects our witness in this world. I was preaching to a group of teenagers a few years ago, and there was a young lady, teenage girl, 17, who after the service, she had grown up in churches just like Grace Baptist. She, this was her world. She even went to a Christian school. So she was around Christian education and the Bible and she learned <coughs> from Christian teachers. And after one service one night, she came to my wife and to me and with tears in her eyes, she, she spoke with broken words. She spoke one word at a time and she simply said, I didn't realize how far I had fallen away from God. I was just so used to everything. You know something? This last year, there was a period of time with a blood clot in my leg. I couldn't walk. I crawled from a couch or a chair to my bed. If I had to get downstairs, downstairs, just, I think it was like 13, 14 steps downstairs, I timed it one day. I mean, I mean, I didn't mean to. It just became aware of me. It took me 20 minutes just to get down those steps. And the only reason I had to go downstairs was to try to get in the car. It took me another 30 to get out into the garage and get into the car to be taken to the doctor to deal with what I was dealing with. You know that when it was finally dealt with and I was able to walk again, our mailbox is in kind of a community mailbox down the street from our house. The mail didn't come right to our house. It, it's a little community mailbox down the street about 50, 60 yards away from our house. I remember the first time I walked outside to get the mail. I cried all the way to the mailbox to get my mail. And I didn't even care. I just said, I love you, Lord. Thank you, I can walk again. I didn't know I was going to get to walk again. And I just, I praise you. If a neighbor was looking outside, they go, oh, there's that crazy guy again. You know, I'm telling you, I don't want to lose the wonder of simple things like being able to walk. And I'm going to tell you something. When you lose the wonder and just become so familiar with Jesus, you lose that awe and glow of Him to the point that you have dangerous attitudes of complacency. Does that describe you? But number two, I want you to see something else. I want you to see the departing opportunities. Did you notice in the text that was up on the screen when they were trying to get rid of him, the Bible says, and he passing through the midst of them, he went his way. He went away. Notice in our text here tonight, Mark chapter 6 and verse 5, and he could there, that's in, in Nazareth, he could there do no mighty work except that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. He could not do much mighty works and he marveled because of their unbelief. And then it says, and he went round about the villages teaching. He left, he left Nazareth. What's the point? The point is this, they lost the opportunity to have Jesus in their community, to see what Jesus could do in their individual lives. They, they, the opportunity was departing from them. May I just simply say, it is a dangerous thing when somebody keeps saying, no, 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 
No, no to accepting Jesus Christ because after a period of time, it becomes second nature to say no to him and that opportunity could become a point of, of no longer, God's no longer speaking to you because you just kept saying no over and over again. I'm not saying that he's not compassionate and that he's not long-suffering and that may be why you're here tonight so you'll accept him. But may I say to God's people, there are blessings that we miss out on because because of our unbelief. Some businessman who's a self-made individual is so dependent upon his own skill set and his own abilities and his own brain and his own creative skills that he just goes through life and he never asks God for his power and his help to fulfill the task that he does. Why? He's done it all of his life and so forth. And so he rarely sees the divine blessing of God upon his own daily labor. Some lady who works hard, hard as anybody could work in her home or outside the home. And she's, she's laboring as hard as she can, but she never stops long enough to say, Now, Lord, I can't do this without you. I'm, I'm incapable. I don't have any ability. And Lord, there are people I want to have an effect upon and I want to be a witness to. And oh God, please, you help me. They never pray that prayer. Why? Because they've become familiar with just living the Christian life and they, they have lost opportunities of seeing the blessing of God upon their life and somebody who's a church attending Christian they sing the songs but they don't know the 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 one who the theme of the song is all about or they don't meditate upon the one that the song is all about and the Christian life becomes commonplace and as a result they lose out on blessings in the Old Testament Israel was in the wilderness And Moses sent 12 spies to go spy out the land of Canaan, the promised land, to check it out. And they came back and 10 of those men said, it's beautiful. There's no way. There's no way we could take it. And all of Israel said, oh no, the same God who parted the Red Sea. Oh, the same God who's been feeding us manna from up above. The same God who's given us water out of the rock out here. The same God who's done many miracles. He can't get us through this one. And because of their unbelief, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. Why? Because they lost the awe of who God is. And I'm asking my own self, are there blessings, are there things that I'm missing out on? Because I just go through my Christian life with a sense of familiarity of being a Christian and just going through the motions. May God help us to understand tonight the dangers of that. It's like a young, it's like a married couple. After a season of time, they begin to take each other for granted. Sure, I'm married. Sure, he's this and she's that. But their marriage goes sour. Why? Because it becomes common. And they've lost that sweetness and the specialness of their marriage. Magnify it thousands upon thousands of times more. And a person loses out on the divine, blessed provisions and answers to prayer from God as a result of someone just got familiar with God. But may I close? That's the best part of a sermon, isn't it? When a man says, may I close? Don't get your hopes up. But I'm, I'm, I, I see the finish line somewhat in sight, so just hang in there. Can I close with some distinctive applications? Let me just say this tonight. What a loss. What an absolute loss for the people of Nazareth. Can you imagine having Jesus, the one who who walked on water, who healed people, who brought people back from the dead? We just saw that back in the previous chapter, chapter 5. The one one who had power over demons and 
power over nature, and over death and disease. He's coming into their country and they go, who is this guy? What a loss. What they could have seen, what they could have known, what they could have experienced, what they could have enjoyed. But may I say to someone who's never accepted Jesus Christ tonight, you say, what do you mean accepted Him? Realizing that He is the only Savior who can save you from an eternal death in hell. Can I say to you tonight, don't let another day or another night go by. Don't miss out on the wonderful joy and privilege of accepting Christ. I said it, I think, yesterday. If I had a thousand lives, I'd give every one of them to Jesus Christ. You say, what does that mean? It means you've got to admit that you are a sinner. We all are. Who are we trying to fool? Your conscience tells you that. There's not a person on the planet. I don't care if they claim to be an atheist. I don't care. There's not a person on the planet who doesn't have a conscience that tells them there's a God. And I'm going, to, I'm going to be accountable to him one of these days. Your conscience has tried to talk to you. Maybe caring people have tried to talk to you about accepting Jesus Christ. Now, I believe that tonight Christ himself is talking to you through his word. I'm just, the, I'm just the, the tool the word's coming out of. And he's speaking to you tonight and he's saying to you, come to me. Jesus comes back to Nazareth the second time. Why? Because he cared. He loved those people. And the Bible says he was amazed at their unbelief. What he could have done for them. May I plead with someone who sits here tonight, don't just be familiar with the language. Get to know him personally. Accept him as your Savior. I heard a story years ago about a bus driver who was a driver of this tour bus. And he sat up there in the front and driver's seat and he had different tour groups that he was driving around and they had these little DVD players that would come down and they would show, after, when they had to travel a long distance, they'd show a, a, a family-friendly uh, film, a video of some sort. And, uh, and someone was talking to him one time. They noticed that he knew every line of every actor, every, every scene. He knew the entire video. He knew it all. And it was a musical thing. So whenever they sang, he knew every song. He knew every word. He knew every single thing. And someone asked him, oh, so you've seen this. Probably he goes, no, I've never seen it. They said, what? He goes, I'm always up here. I can't see it, but I've heard it. I've heard it and heard it and heard it and heard it and heard it, but I've never seen it. And I thought to myself, there are some people who have heard and heard and heard and heard about Jesus Christ but have never said, oh, Jesus, save me. I want you personally. And I can't go to heaven through my mom. I can't go to heaven through my dad. I can't go through the, uh, because I'm a good person. I'm, I know that I need you to save me. I'm a sinner that is bound for hell and I ask you to save me. So what's the first application? Come to Christ tonight. Nazareth! You need to understand who was coming into town. I say to anyone who doesn't know Jesus tonight personally, Now's the time. Don't reject Him. But to somebody who is a Christian who's locked into this routine mode, all I've tried to say this whole sermon long is simply this. Refresh your worship of Christ. Let Him rekindle. Let Him reignite. Let Him relight the fire of your, of your awe of who He is. Don't just read words. Let Him talk to you. Don't just attend church. 
Be a member who comes to hear from the Lord Himself, as Pastor has said in every single service. May, may every song, though they're familiar, there were several songs that we sang tonight. I didn't even need the hymn book in front of me. I know the words, but you know something? I need to still be in awe of stand up, stand up for Jesus and revive us again. And I need to, I need to refresh and keep my worship of Him uh, intimate and warm and tender. You say, how do I do that? Meditate on what He's done for you. Go back to the cross and remember what Christ did, the suffering that He suffered for you and for me. The Bible says He became sin for us. He was no sinner, but He became sin for us. And the weight of God's divine wrath was placed upon Him. And when that wrath was placed upon him, the Bible says, God the Father was satisfied. The payment for my sin and your sin was paid for. So therefore, I need to go back to the cross and remind myself what Jesus did for me. When I was a youth pastor, I had a teenager who stood up in a testimony meeting among his peers. He was a funny guy. We usually had fun laughing with him and but he stood up to give a testimony one night and he said, you know, the other night, Friday night, whatever it was, he said, he said, an electrical storm came through and he said, we all lost our electricity and the power in our house. And he said, my family and I were prepared to, uh, we were going to uh, watch TV that night, but when we lost the electricity, he said, we didn't have anything like that to be done. And he said, I found myself thinking, well, what am I going to do? Well, everybody, as he was giving this testimony, we were all looking at him and wondering, what, what, what did he do? He said, I went up to my room and I had a little lantern in my room and I turned it on or I lit it. And I, he said, I just grabbed my Bible. And he said, I made a decision. I was going to read what Matthew and what Mark and what Luke and what John had to say about the crucifixion. He said, I just read about Jesus dying on the cross for me from those four men. And he said, by the time I got through, he said, the power came back on. But he said, to be honest with you, I wasn't interested in watching TV. He said, it so affected me. I wished the power was off every night so that I could think on what Jesus Christ did for me. Here I am many years later. I'm still talking about that boy's testimony. His words were powerful to us. I'm not telling you to go home and read every book that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that refers to the crucifixion, but may I say we need to return to that refreshed awe of what Christ did for me and for you. Let that be rekindled. And may I say one more thing. To those of you who are praying for a lost friend, for a wayward neighbor, a spouse that doesn't know Christ or is away from the Lord. To those of you who are praying for somebody to come back to Christ or to come to Him, i got some good news for you. Would you look please at our text in Mark 6? It says in verse 3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Look at this. The brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah, and Simon. I can tell you about two of those guys. 
You know who James is? He's the one who wrote the epistle of James. What does that tell us? Somewhere along the way, he stopped rejecting Jesus. Earlier, he was embarrassed by Jesus. But now, later on, he realized who Jesus was. His own half-brother. And he accepted him. And became the first pastor of the church at Jerusalem. And that word Judah, that name Judah, that's the name Jude. We have an epistle from Jude as well. His half-brother. Can I just read to you the first verse of Jude? Let me just read it to you. Jude says this, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. What's the point? The point is the final chapter is not written on somebody you've been praying for. There were two brothers, at least two, who had rejected Jesus earlier on. Later on, they become great church leaders. Here's my friend, my point to you. The fact is, God's people need to stay encouraged and just keep on praying for those who are away from the Lord. Just a few weeks ago, you and I were all celebrating Christmas. It was a great time. I don't know if you had a good Christmas. We had the time of our life because we were still together. We had Christmas. We loved it. My, we have two sons and they have their kids, which makes me a grandfather. I know that surprises you and uh, uh, that I'm that old. And, uh, and they came to visit us and this Christmas and they were all in our house together and just tore the place apart. And I, I didn't care. I, we were glad to have them there. And I'm going to tell you something. We took pictures galore. And one of my favorite pictures was one I took with my camera. The other one was the one I took in my, in my mind. It was this. Our two oldest granddaughters would not let go hardly of their Nana, that's Lynn, or their Papa. I have a picture of the two oldest girls clinging to their Nana, sitting on the couch, just one on both arms, and not, not just hanging on, I'm just leaning into them, hanging on to her, and I got a picture of that. Later on, I'd be sitting around, and they would be clinging to me and putting their head on my shoulder. Why? Because they love Papa. And they love Nana. And we don't get to see each other very much. And they knew Papa's been sick. And they knew that Nana was taking care of Papa. And their hearts were heavy. And they were old enough as 12-year-old girls to just love and want to be with us. Why? Because we were not familiar all the time around them. And I thought to myself, you know, if we lived near each other and saw each other all the time, I probably wouldn't get, oh, I'd get a nice hug, but not that clinging. I don't want you to get away. I want to just stay with you. And I found myself wondering, do I sometimes treat the Lord Jesus that way? To where I become so familiar with Him. I'm close for a while and then I wander off and drift away from what He's done for me. I have no idea how the Lord may have talked to you tonight, but there is a danger of familiarity when we become so used to things, spiritually speaking, that we lose the awe and wonder of being a believer in Christ. Let's rekindle that fire tonight. Would you bow your heads with me?